this week on the Backtable Podcast. This is an escalation technique. And our biggest challenge, I think, in these cases is, you know, there are kind of three different phases to the case, right? Understanding what you need to do, getting to where you need to do it, and then applying your therapy. And one of the big unknowns in our cases is how long is it just going to take me to get from A to B? And usually once you've gotten from A to B, you know how long the case is going to take you more or less. And so where I've seen improvements in my skills and I think others is really learning to iterate quickly and to escalate quickly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. How often do you hear about mic drop innovations in radial to peripheral equipment? Here's one. The Sublime Radio Access Platform from Sermotics offers 250-centimeter rapid exchange balloon catheters. That's long enough to reach from the wrist to and through the pedal loop, and their unmatched deliverability ensures they get there. Ready for another mic drop? Sublime guide sheaths are available in lengths up to 150 centimeters in both six and five French platforms. The Sublime portfolio even includes high-performance support catheters in lengths up to 200 centimeters. Getting the picture? The Sublime radio access platform is engineered to make wrist-to-foot access not only possible, but practical. Don't just think radio to peripheral, think wrist-to-foot with the Sublime radio access platform. Visit sublimeradio.com to learn more. Backtable listeners, we invite you to visit the lab at Reflow during ISET, that's I-S-E-T, for a hands-on demonstration of our new and upcoming devices. It's a great opportunity to try out the Wingman Crossing Catheter with its unique extended bevel tip. The Specs LP, the low-profile version of the Specs Shapeable Support Catheter, and the new line of core catheters for use in challenging PCI procedures. It's the pulse of medical ingenuity at work. See it for yourself at ICIT or visit us online at reflowmedical.com. And now back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. And my guest today is Dr. Michael Cumming, private practice interventional radiologist based in Minneapolis. Our topic is Chiba needle technique for crossing heavily calcified CTOs. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we start, could you tell me a little bit about your practice setting? Well, I'm in the office-based lab in uh, southwest metro of Minneapolis, and we are part of a fiercely independent, multi-specialty medical group practice. So there are about 200-plus physicians that fall under our parent organization, which is called the Infinite Health Collaborative. And within the practice, there's multiple different specialties from colorectal surgery to orthopedics, obsgyne, dermatology, plastics. So a, a wide swath of different specialties. I see. And then what's your lab like? Are you the only interventionalist at your lab? So we have about a 7,000 square foot facility with both CT, a fixed uh, ceiling mounted uh, Siemens room with Combeam CT. And within that area, we currently have three IRs and uh, we are building a second facility on the east side of the uh, Twin Cities Metro that will be open sometime next winter. And then we also, within our immediate practice, we cohabitate with a preventative cardiologist. 
That's fantastic. Wow. That sounds like expansion is in your future. Wow. How long has your lab been open? So we actually are just coming to year two of being open. We started seeing patients as our current practice, vascular and interventional experts in August of 2020. And we got the keys to our new lab in December of 2020. And so, yeah, we're close to our second year of being open. Congratulations. That must be really, really special to build something independent that's working for you such that you could expand. Yeah, it's a great environment and just a, it's a wonderful way to practice interventional radiology. Do you, uh, do you do cases at the hospital as well? I do not. We have privileges at one of the nearby hospitals, but uh, we do not do any cases there. I see. Okay. Well, that helps me kind of understand a little bit more about where you're working on these high-risk patients, difficult cases. Okay. So the cheap needle technique, you've kind of introduced it on Twitter. You've posted some case examples. Can you walk me through the basic technique? Sure. So, you know, the idea, right, with all the revas cases that we do is you're trying to get from A to B. And with our conventional techniques, we're going to have a certain percentage of cases that are technical failures. And the idea came to me quite a few years ago. I started doing this in a patient that had really bad, heavily calcified SFA CTOs in rest pain at night and, and very short distance claudication. And that was his main complaint that was making his life difficult. And so my first idea was after trying twice to get through and failing, and he wasn't a good bypass candidate, I was like, I just need something I can push harder. I'll be able to get to where I need to go. And so the last time I attempted this, I pulled out, I said, somebody get me a Chiba needle. You know, it was a short Chiba needle. And everybody in the room looked at me with very wide eyes. <laughs> and, you know, I gave it a try using extravascular ultrasound to guide it and got quite a way down the SFA, but couldn't get far enough because the needle wasn't long enough. And ultimately, I abandoned the, the case. And I, I was actually never able to complete that revask in that patient. But that got me looking and came across the 65 centimeter version of this needle on the Cook website. And that's what started it. All right. Yeah. Just some active Googling and figuring out the longest Chiba you can get. Is that the longest Chiba that you can get, 65? That's the longest Chiba you can get. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you put the Chiba through a base catheter, right? Well, there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to use the Chiba and to get it to where you want to do things. And it really depends on what your access, you know, are you an anti-grade CFA, SFA, or a retrograde tibial or contralateral up and over approach. And so delivering, you know, the needle basically to where you want to use it. I typically will use a 40 centimeter comfy tight catheter, and then it's it sheathed or covered in that instance, right? And that allows you to get it there, but you can also just place it over an ON8 wire. It should be an ON8 wire, you know, without a, a coating on it, so you're not shearing off the coating. Uh, what wire do you use when you're doing these? I'll use multiple different wires. If I'm advancing it, a lot of movement over the wire, I'll just grab a cheap nitinol wire off the shelf or a bare stainless steel wire. But you have to be careful pulling the wire out of the needle. If you have any kinks in the, at the tip of the wire, it's pretty easy. You can shear it off, obviously. So if you do bend to the tip of the wire, the best thing to do with that case is just pull everything and not 
not shear off the wire so you're not spending another 10 minutes trying to retrieve the tip of it. So not hydrophilic coated wire, just a bare wire or a nitinol wire, always a 018 wire. You ever do it over an 014 wire? Yeah, you certainly can do an 014. You know, the 018 just has that much more stability or trackability than, than an 014. Just that little bit of extra thickness to the wire gives you a lot more support. Usually I go 018, but 014, of course, will work just fine. And then this is clearly an escalation technique. So can you kind of walk me through all the stuff you do before you're bringing out the big guns? Yeah, and I think that's a great point, right? This is an escalation technique. And our biggest challenge, I think, in these cases is, you know, there are kind of three different, three different phases to the case, right? Understanding what you need to do, getting to where you need to do it, and then applying your therapy. And one of the big unknowns in our cases is how long is it just going to take me to get from A to B? And usually once you've gotten from A to B, you know how long the case is going to take you more or less. And so the key where I've seen improvements in my skills and I think others is really learning to iterate quickly and to escalate quickly and not to sit there with a good old angle glide wire for 30 minutes trying to cross an SFA <laughs> occlusion. Like that's, absolutely. I used to yeah. do plenty of that and that's not a great strategy. So I, I think part of that probably just comes with younger operators or less experienced operators having less of a dedicated algorithm of what they're going to do if something fails and just kind of hoping that what they're going to do is going to work. So what do you do? So that's what you start with, angle glide wire, angle catheter. Usually, depending on how tough I think the cases will be, sometimes it's just a simple diagnostic four or five French catheter, straight glide, angle glide, uh, just kind of depending on what the lesion morphology looks like. And I'm very quick to iterate. You know, I think one of the important goals of these cases is really staying true lumen. And, you know, the minute you loop your glide wire and just push hard, you're heading into the subintimal space. You know, the good old bully technique of nice big loop and just push really hard. But often that gives you a subintimal recan. And I, I think it's really important to stay true lumen. You know, atherectomy in the subintimal space is a waste of time. It often means you're going to be putting in a lot of metal to, uh, to support the case. And I think as we all know, metal below the groin is best to avoid if you can. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think I uh, derailed you a little bit from when you were telling me about what, uh, what you like to do next. Go ahead and tell me. So, so my approach, originally the Chiba or a sharp recanalization approach for me, that was a bailout. Now it's a very quick go-to for me. So my standard is try the good old basics, some sort of glide in a diagnostic catheter and to not create a big summit double space doing that. And if that doesn't work, I quickly iterate usually to the back end of the glide wire. And it's actually one of my favorite recan tools is back end of a glide wire. It works really well, particularly when you're in a straight segment of the artery and you just need something to go forward. And, you know, the next escalation of that is actually to put a balloon in and inflate the balloon to anchor it. And then to use the back end of the glide wire, and you can generate quite a bit more force doing that. And after that, then it's to the Chiba. And so, so I'm very quick to go to the Chiba. And then, of course, the, the other option is retrograde tibial. So whatever I'm doing, if I'm spending more than five minutes doing the same old thing, I've tried to get away from that, that slippery slope. You're like, okay, time to try something different. 
and you're getting ready to try it. And then the glide wire goes another five millimeters and you're like, wait, this is going to work. And you persist <laughs> and you persist. And all yeah. of a sudden it's 30 minutes later. So yeah, escalating and, and understanding escalating. I think it's, it's hard for younger people to do it and you need to really think about it. So when I go into a procedure, I have a really good idea of how I'm going to escalate. You know, things are going to fail. And so have a plan on how you're going to iterate when you're in the room. It's great to have that thought out ahead of time rather than trying to figure it out in the room. Definitely. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense coming from an OBL setting too, where you don't have access to every single uh, wire catheter combination that you might in the hospital. Right. Yes. And in the OBL, you know, you need to manage the costs. If you're careless, you can often end up with the privilege of paying to do the procedure rather than getting paid to do the procedure. So yes, it's important to manage your expenses and iterate and keep things moving forward. Great. Well, going back to the Chiba needle technique, you pretty much always put it through a comfy catheter or does it go through other shaped catheters? And if, it, if you do put it through more shaped catheters, does it hold its shape? Right. So the Chiba is very stiff, right? It's like pulling out a, almost like a Lunderquist wire. It's, it's stiff. And so the shape of the catheter really is irrelevant. It doesn't do anything to redirect the Chiba needle. So I always, almost always add a little bit of shape to the Chiba needle and how you shape the needle gives it some different properties. And so if you shape with the bevel, you know, you put the curve with the bevel in, that's the way I do it most often. And in that case, that's great for crossing occlusions. Occasionally, I'll bend the needle out so the bevel is really pointing out and it, it wants to grab every little thing it can touch on the way down. And that's useful, particularly at the popliteal bifurcation. If you're trying to catch the origin of the anterior tibial artery, that's where I'll bend it in a different direction. And I'll start, usually I'll have the, the stylet in the needle and just a little bit of shape near the tip. It has to obviously be very gentle because you can kink it. And then start with a little bit of shape, advance, and you can see, you know, when you're using, particularly in heavily calcified arteries, you need to do orthogonal views, understand where the needle is, and pull it out, reshape as needed to, to do things. But to deliver the needle to the site, either over a wire or through a catheter. And as long as you're, we're not putting like 45 degree bends, like we're talking five degree bends, maybe 10 degree bends. And if you just spin it while advancing it through the catheter, I haven't put one through the side of the catheter. I'm, it absolutely is possible, but you know, you need to obviously watch what you're doing and understand what you're doing while you're doing it. But it's easy to get the needle to where you need it. Okay. So you get the needle all the way to the CTO. And you mentioned earlier when you were using the shorter Chibas, you were using extravascular ultrasound. Do you find that useful when you're using the long needle as well? Yeah. So Evis is a great way to do it if you can see really well. You know, in really heavily calcified arteries, fluoro is just the way to do it. I, you have God's roadmap. I mean, you don't, yeah. <laughs> you don't need Evis, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it, in uh, arteries where it's harder, you know, you don't have the calcium to track, then EVIS is a very useful way of doing it as well. I see. Okay. So I want to kind of walk through some hypothetical case examples with you if possible. So one of the recent cases you posted was a antegrade SFA pop case. How do you decide your access for that? First of all. So I really think, you know, if at all possible, Cases that you're doing below the groin, you should do ipsilateral if you can. And there are multiple reasons for doing this. Your 
control over your catheters and wires is much higher than it is coming up and over. Everything you do takes longer when you're up and over. Your exchanges take longer, your, op your opportunities to pull a wire by accident, your fluoro times are longer, and your workload is higher. So the idea of going anti-grade is to minimize your workload, to maximize control of your catheters and wires. And most of the anti-grade work I do will be a proximal SFA. I rarely do a downhill puncture on a common femoral artery. I don't like doing it. I think there are so many problems with a common femoral artery downhill puncture. Like what? What have you seen? Other than the wire always wanting to go in the profunda. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course. So, you know, inevitably, you know, I mean, obviously not always, but when you're doing a downhill puncture, you know, yes, the wire is going to end up in the profunda. And Yes, you can solve it, but you probably, you know, you're going to blow five minutes of room time and radiate your hands and, and stuff. So that's one of the problems with a downhill puncture. I think the other underappreciated problem with a downhill puncture is often your entry into the artery is really steep, just given the panis and everything else. And so you can put a lot of force on the artery because you've got a very vertical entry into it. And those are the cases where you look down and you're like, why am I getting so much ooze around my sheath? And because there's a lot of force and you can tear your arteriotomy and make it bigger. So I think that's a, an underappreciated problem with a downhill common femoral artery puncture. Okay. All right. So you sold me on the SFA puncture. All right. Okay. Um, and then uh, what size sheath do you put in usually? Usually. So, you know, this brings up you know, these hindrances to how you get cases done and sort of barriers you put in place. So I typically start six French, but if I'm doing particularly popliteal work that involves a trifurcation, the seven French sheath is really nice because with a seven French sheath, you can dual wire tibials. You can place two different 014 balloons or 018 balloons through a seven French sheath. So you can do kissing balloons at the bifurcation of the popliteal artery. And, you know, you sit there and you start with a six French and you're like, oh, I should probably do dual wire this. And then you're like, oh, now I have to upsize the sheath. So, you know, like reducing these barriers to making decisions as you go along. And it's also like when we do a, a leg case, the whole leg is prepped out. So if you need to go to the ankle, you just go to the ankle. It's, you don't have this barrier where you're like, oh, great. Now I got to wait for 10 minutes while they cut the drapes and do a suboptimal prep and get going. So, uh, you know, these are things you learn with time, but you don't want to have things in place that alter your decision-making during the case. Have everything ready to go. Definitely. Yeah. Perfect planning. I don't know. I don't know that idiom, but something about perfect planning. I don't know. Right. Perfect planning. <laughs> well, you know, we're, so one of the things, I mean, this is a little bit of an off topic for this, but every case that gets done in our lab has a separate plan note. So I have a revask plan note and it's like, I'm going to need IBIS. I need CO2. I need to make sure that, you know, here's the heparin dose I want. And so we have this form we fill out. And so the techs walk in and they know exactly what to pull, what to have ready. And again, it's just eliminating these barriers to good decision-making during a procedure. And we do this for everything we do in our lab. So even a chessboard gets a plan note and that's where you put in left IJ because the right's gone and they've had other lines. And then you don't walk into a room with the right neck prepped out and you're like, oh no, no, no. this was supposed to be a left-sided port. Not a lot of people do that, but that was something we, I started doing probably seven or eight years ago. And then it just eliminates that morning you're driving into work and you're getting phone calls about what do you need for this? Is this, this, and that 
that goes away. It makes life so much better for everybody. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all about kind of like eliminating the clicks before you start, kind of, because the more ramped up you are going into a case, the more energy you bring into it that may not be positive, and the more likely you are to give up earlier on. I think if if all of these issues are are there, eliminating friction. Yes, <laughs> it's like our job in legs and out of legs. There you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, that was a really lame mom joke. <laughs> so. uh Okay, so that's kind of how you do your anti-grade case. We talked about sheath size. Let's say your standard techniques fail. You're going to take out a 40-centimeter Compi catheter and your 65 Chiba, and then then tell me what you do. So get the Chiba to the spot, Evis or Fluoro, and usually with a little bit of shape, you can obviously steer the wire. A roadmap can be really helpful so you know when you've hit when you've gotten to point B from A, and then you, so once cross the lesion, and again, you've got to do a lot of orthogonal imaging and understand people have a lot of, like, yeah, at first, when you think about it, that's crazy. Putting a needle inside an art, like, this is nuts, right? Like, who would do something like this? And yet, it just works extremely well, and you need to get over this idea that this is something dangerous. This actually is there are lots of things we do that are dangerous, like a wrong size balloon in a calcified iliac artery is a really dangerous thing to do. So as long as you're paying attention to what you're doing and you're understanding what's happening, it's not a dangerous thing to do. It actually lets you get things done quickly and safely. And so sorry to ask a dumb question, but you're pushing the Chiba needle in with the inner stylet in as well? Yeah, I, I'll do both. There's not a right way. I haven't necessarily found an advantage. I mean, one of the nice things, if you don't have the stylet in, you'll get blood back once you've hit true lumen again. So, you know, sometimes if I'm delivering it through a four French catheter and I don't have a wire down, I'll just leave the stylet in, but you can pull it. I personally haven't noticed an advantage or a disadvantage to leaving the stylet in. If you have the stylet in and you're going and you're pushing forward, um, I assume you're making very small, small steps forward with each push, right? How do you know um, when you're true luminal, when you've gotten past the occlusion? Conversely, have you ever gone extra luminal? And how do you know when that's the case without injecting contrast? Yeah, so you absolutely can get extra luminal. And I've gotten extra luminal plenty of times. So that it's not a question of if that's going to happen. You know, it will happen. And it will happen with an 014 wire, it will happen with an 035 wire. You're going to perforate. If you're going to do difficult critical limb and get stuff done, you're going to perforate some vessels. So you need to have a strategy for, for dealing with that. And yes, it will happen. So the things I think where I've seen issues, particularly where there's no calcium to follow, and you're, if you're just using fluoro and you don't have EVAS, trying to visualize like the P1 segment of the popliteal artery with ultrasound is hard, particularly in a case. Yeah, so occasionally you will end up extravascular. A roadmap can be really helpful. You may not see exactly where you are at that time, but you know where you want to go. And that's why this is a nice technique in long, relatively straight vessels is you're not trying to navigate the circle of Willis with a Chiba needle. So, <laughs> Okay, so then, so if you do get extraluminal, what's your technique to manage it once you've gotten extraluminal with the cheap needle? Do you just pull back and kind of pick a different plane and keep going? Yeah, that's typically what I do. You know, you can certainly do a run and have a look at it. And, you know, a little bit of soft tissue at Strav doesn't get me very excited. 
sometimes you'll see a lot and you'll be like, okay, I just can't leave this oozing for the next hour while I'm trying to get the rest of the case done. And that's where, you know, just inflating a balloon, waiting for a little while, you can usually get a balloon up to that area or just above where you cause the perv, inflate it. You can use some of the tricks like doing a wrap around the leg, something that Mustafa's demonstrated in his lab. You know, I've had other perforations from, you know, either ballooning and tearing an artery and occasionally what will do is inflate a balloon in that segment of artery, uh, use ultrasound and advance a spinal or a micropuncture needle up to where the tear is. And you can inject thrombin around it, which will help take care of the perforation that way. Uh, that's a pretty effective way of dealing with something that's bleeding on the table and is, and is giving you grief. It's not unusual to see in some of these cases, you know, arterial venous fistula when you're done. So I've gone through popliteal artery and seen a fistula into the popliteal vein. But again, you can deal with it. What's the worst complication that you've seen while using this technique? I'd say the worst complication I had, you know, a small arterial venous fistula from the popliteal artery to popliteal vein. Really, that's about it. I mean, obviously you can do real damage, right? Like we talked about just with the iliac, blowing a balloon up in the iliac. Things that would concern me is just uncontrollable extravasation, particularly, at, you know, as you get into the calf and where the compartments are tighter. So that would be a concern. That makes a lot of sense. All right. I have a question from uh, one of my back table partners, Sabine. Uh, he says he's had three to five cases in his career where the calcium was so bad that he was able to cross after a ton of work, but honestly, he probably shouldn't have. Even after getting through and through, the devices were hard to go across, balloons ruptured, catheters broke, etc. And finally, the calcium from the recanalized segment crushed his eventual stents. Um, this was before he was using IVL. Are you seeing any of these cases more often with this technique? Yeah, I mean, certainly if you're pulling out the tiba, you're you're going to be dealing with a severely diseased artery, right? And yes, we get into that scenario where great, you got from A to B and really, are you going to make this any better anyways after all that work? And that's correct. I think certainly being able to do plaque modification using either various devices, be it CSI, be it rotablator or the Rex device in really heavily calcified, there's no question you know, you're able to modify that plaque so you're not sitting there with balloons at 20, 30 atmospheres of pressure. So th there's that side of it. The other side is, is often in these cases, I'm not trying to restore a six millimeter, seven millimeter SFA. A four millimeter lumen is better than no lumen. And yeah. <laughs> in these patients, you know, with non-healing wounds or rest pain, that's maybe good enough. So I think, you know, we all have this eye reflex where we want the SFA to be this beautiful pipe from the groin to the knee. And that's really not our goal. You know, our goal is just to improve anti-grade flow of blood. And that just is often all you need. Don't over treat. And, you know, these guys will come in off of their SFA will measure seven or eight millimeters. And it's like, no, we don't need a seven or eight millimeter channel down to the popliteal artery. It's like we have this saying, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. It's kind of like that. <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, in follow-up, if you've determined what you've done is not good enough, then you're dealing with a real lumen when you come back. And you have, a, you know, you can spend your time on treatment rather than just trying to cross. We didn't talk about this, but um, do you use IVIS in your OBL for sizing for these? Absolutely. I think it's an enormous mistake to not use IBIS. 
this spring, I did a talk at NCVH on IVES, and it's amazing that we have this tool that's relatively inexpensive. And, you know, with some of the recent studies, particularly one, I think it was in the JACC this spring, the patency difference between interventions done with IVES and without IVES is remarkable. And I, I think IVES is the single cheapest tool that we have to improve patency. So I absolutely think essentially every case should be done with IVES. That's quite an endorsement. Yeah. Uh, one thing with the cheap needle technique, have you ever gone through and then found that you're in the subintimal plane after using this technique? Absolutely. So yes, definitely you can do IVES after and be like, okay, that isn't where I want it to go. Yeah. What do you do then? Do you pull back, try again and try and go true lumen? Or once you're subintimal with your Chiba, you're like, well, this is what I got. Well, the decision to try again, I think partly depends on how lucky I think I got just getting to where I want to go. So, you know, if you're in a below knee popliteal occlusion into the trifurcation arteries and I'm subintimal, but I'm, you know, somewhere got back, say, true lumen into the tibial perineal trunk, I'm probably not going to give that up. And, you know, in that case, if it's a short stent, I'm not too worried about it. I don't want to put 20 centimeters of stent in a leg, but if you're putting a little 20 millimeter stent or a Phillips tack or something like that, I don't think that's worth the risk of losing access and not getting back. My goal generally in a case, like if I've done an anti-grade SFA, and I'm like, Yahoo, wire went, this is great. And then Ivis, and you see you're actually subintimal, then I'll, I'll go right to the ankle and come back up and try and do something true lumen. I think it's really worth the effort to be true lumen when possible. I'd love to go through a couple more case examples here before we wrap up. And uh, you have way more experience than me of different case examples where this would be helpful. Um, so if mine are too pedantic, please let's move on to your more difficult ones. So let's talk about maybe a, a retrograde below the knee case that uh, you had to use this 65 centimeter Chiba needle on. So you can use, I've used both ATA and PTA. I've never used it through perineal puncture. Again, one of the things that's important with a retrograde tibial is to have a shallow access into the artery. The Chiba, it's got a lot of force. So like a 45 degree entry to me is pretty steep. And, you know, you'll see even with a shallow entry, you'll do an angio with a retrograde access and you can see how tented the artery is being pulled because of the force. Um, so a shallow entry is important. And while you're trying to get the chiba to where the occlusion is, a little bit of shape in it and spin it. Just spin and let it move freely on its own, you know, so the tip of the chiba is not catching every little plaque on the way. You have it like a little bit out of the catheter at this point, or you have it sheathed in the catheter? I almost never put a sheath in when I'm working retrograde, but I don't do a lot of primary retrograde cases for a variety of reasons. And there are people that do most of their critical limb work retrograde. I don't, I think there are a lot of problems with it, so I don't do that. But so if I'm doing a retrograde, usually if I'm just doing retrograde and a wire retrograde, I'll just put the inner cannula from the micropuncture set in. So that's all I have in the artery. Again, you can manage your 018014 wires. If you're worried about bleeding, you can put a little 2E on the end of it if you want to. If I'm going to use the Chiba retrograde, then I'll just use the outer catheter from the micropuncture. And that's my access, so a little four French catheter. So then I'm barebacking 
the Chiba needle up to the occlusion. And usually I'll, then I will do that over a wire, just stainless steel O and a wire and advanced setup to the occlusion. All right. And then what is your usual access from above for those cases? Usually above, I'll put it in a four French catheter. I use a Cumpy, and the reason I use a Cumpy is because that's the only 40-centimeter catheter I have on the shelf. <laughs> um, you know, you want, obviously you want to use it as a relatively straight catheter. You know, you can take a 65-centimeter catheter and just cut the hub off and shorten it a little bit. You know, you don't need the catheter to protect the artery, so you can just place that over a wire through your sheath, so that's pretty easy to do. Um, someone posted on Twitter their trick from up and over with the Chiba was actually to load it in the sheath dilator and then just push the two over the bifurcation as a unit. You're just pushing the needle and, and sheath together, and then you don't have to worry about puncturing through the wall of the sheath. I think that was an interesting idea. In that setup, do you have a wire going through up and over, and then you have the dilator, and then you have the Chiba in next to the dilator, but next to the wire? So what I typically have done, I'm going to try that next time I need to try it with an up and over situation, I'm going to try it with the sheath dilator. What I historically have done is just an O and A wire, load the needle into the catheter and things that can help, like as you're coming around the apex of the bifurcation, make sure the bevel of the cheap is down so it's not grabbing. But again, when I do that, I load it into the, into the catheter and I push the catheter and Chiba together as a unit. So you're not going to, you know, shear the catheter or put a hole through it. Any other examples I'm missing about places where you find this useful? No, I think the, the only thing that I've changed using it is how quickly it's my go-to. It used to be, you know, 40 minutes of struggle. And then I was like, okay, get the Chiba. And now I'm like, okay, five minutes, get, get the Chiba, we're done. You know, that last case that I posted in our little Twitter group, like that was just a solid wall of calcium. Nothing was going through that. It wasn't that long, but it wasn't going to matter what wire I pulled out. It was not going to go through that artery. You, it, something sharp needed to be done. It's great that you have that at your disposal. I guess my next question is, how long do you think it's going to take for the 65-centimeter Chibas to go on back order from Cook? <laughs> right. The infamous Cook back order. I know. I, yeah, maybe I should tell my uh, tech to order a whole pile of them for me. So <laughs> I've got a wall of them. You know, it's just a... As people gain experience with it, and I think it's a really great technique that, that can be added to your armamentarium to take care of these uh, often really challenging cases. And if you're a skilled operator and you understand what you're doing, it's a great way to write. Yeah, and improve procedure time if you switch to it early enough or if you're comfortable enough with it. I'm sure a lot of folks are probably just squeamish about the idea of advancing a very sharp needle into an artery and causing extravasation. But it sounds like you've had really good luck with it. You post good cases about it. It sounds crazy to do this, but everything we do, like, look where our field has come. You know, I finished my training in 97 and the things we're able to do uh, that we just thought was not possible, couldn't be done, not safe to do. And look at the incredible venous reconstructions that are done. And, and largely, you know, we're using sharp techniques. It may be the back end of a glide wire or some sort of stainless steel wire, but these techniques really allow us to help people that don't have a lot of other great options. I are the last frontier, right? <laughs> Any other parting words to folks who want to try this in their own practice? Contact me. 
If you've got some questions, I'm certainly happy to talk. I've learned so much from other people across the specialty, and it's great to be able to show some of the things that I've learned that I think can help patients and help physicians be better operators. And that's my takeaway for this. Is, is I'm available. <laughs> right. Give me a call. Contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn, or if you have my email, email me. I'm happy to discuss and, and talk about cases. Very cool. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Cumming, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Allie. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.